welcome to the Oprah the Consciousness Transforming Podcast for Exceptional 21st Century Living. We've got a very different show today. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Ken Doka, and we're going to be talking about his book, When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End. Now, before you go running for the hills, folks, this isn't a scary show. It's not a scary book. This gives you a lot of information that you wouldn't necessarily put together. Okay, um, as I was reading the book, I, I put together some things that happened in my life around death, and I was like, oh, wow, the light bulb turned on. So, you know, sit back, relax, take some notes, and um, gain some information. You know, during this time of COVID, with so many people dying, at the time of this recording, we had, what, 476,544 people pass away. Those are families that need um, people to encircle them, people to help them with their bereavement process. And this book definitely covers that. So if you are um, in close contact with someone who has passed over or you have, um, you know, you know of someone third or fourth hand, share this book, share this information, because it's definitely going to help them with their process. Now, uh, the information shared on Get Over It uses intuitive and pragmatic insight to help you shift your consciousness to break through the blocks and release energy that is no longer needed. Yes, we're going to help you let go of the BS that is holding you back, but you guys know I always ask that question, are you truly ready to? And by the way, folks, BS is belief system. Now, a bit about me for my new listeners, Intuitive Since Birth, I'm a third-generation intuitive with over three decades of experience supporting people to break through the blocks along their path. I'm a strategist for personal and professional transformation, revealing cutting-edge information that enables you to prosper and thrive. I spent 25 successful successful years in corporate America as an executive sales professional, and I am the founder of Healing Visions Ministries and the Northern California Children's Education Network, a 501c3 nonprofit. I also authored two books. I provide consultations and healings in all areas of life that heal the mind-body-spirit connection, allowing you to live your very best life. My clients tell me that I keep it real while providing them with accurate information to assist them along their journey as a spirit living a human existence. But they also say, if you really don't want to know, don't ask Monique. My background includes a doctorate in metaphysics, Reiki master teacher, ordained minister, and clinical hypnotherapist. So whether you are stressed, depressed, or possessed, I can help. To find out more about me, <clears throat> excuse me, and the services I offer, visit my website, and that's MoniqueChapman.com. I invite you to like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. My guest today, Dr. Kenneth J. Doka, is a professor of counseling and a leading authority on issues involving death, dying, and grief. He has edited or written over 35 acclaimed books on death-related subjects, including Grief is a Journey in 2016. Additionally, Dr. Doka is president and chair of the um, Association of Death Education and Counseling in the International Work Group on Death, Dying, and Bereavement. As a senior consultant and speaker for the Hospice Foundation of America, Dr. Doka gives approximately 30 lectures or keynote speeches a year to inter international offices. He writes a blog called Good Morning uh, for Psychology Today. Um, his Writing has appeared in O Magazine and in OK. Dr. Doka has appeared on CNN and nationally syndicated radio programs, 
touch of gray, and real simple. He has been awarded the Herman Fiefel? Is that how you Feifel. say it, Dr. Fiefel? Award um, considered to be the highest honor within, uh-oh, Tantanology? Tantanology. There you go. Thank you. Um, and the really presented special contributions to the field, um, to the field award for the Association for Death Education and Counseling. And if you want to read more about him, you can go to his website, and that's drkendoka.com, all one word, D-R-K-E-N-D-O-K-A.com. Welcome, Dr. Ken. Thank you. And and let me make one correction. I uh -huh. was present of ADEC, and I was formerly chair of the International Work Group. I don't currently hold those offices. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you um, so much. And it's thanology? Thanatology. Thanatology. Okay. So now that I finally got that out, what the heck is it? <laughs> uh, thanatology is, is, uh, means the study of death and dying. Okay. And what brought you to this? Well, it was very, very much of an accident. Um, you know, my, my son, when he was younger, always used to tease me and say, Dad, you know, when you were 10 years old and people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say, I want to study death and dying? And, and I obviously said no. Actually, when I was in graduate school, um, my area of focus and my area of interest was uh, juvenile delinquency. Oh. And Part of my experience, you were supposed to have a clinical experience, uh, and I was going to do it in the summer 50 years ago, summer of 1973, uh, and, and I had, um, not quite 50 years ago, I guess, uh, well, long, I don't Close know. Enough. I'm, yeah. no, I'm sorry, 1970, actually it was 1971, so I, I just okay. had a year So that was 50 years ago, and um, and I had the perfect um perfect spot. I was going to do it at Spofford Center, and Spofford Center now closed is where New York City used to hold its, its juvenile delinquents. So if you wanted to work with the creme de la creme of delinquency, that's where you went. Um, and um, about a week before um, I was ready to go out there, I was studying in St. Louis. Um, I, you know, my home was in New York City, so I was going to do my internship over the summer um, you know, and, and live at home. Uh, live at my parents' house, I should say, which was my home at that time. And um, about a week before I was to leave, I got a letter uh, from the Spofford Center from my supervisor, and I, I didn't even open it the first day because I thought this is just going to be one of those letters that say on day one you come here and bring this and do that. Uh -huh. um, but when I opened the letter the next day, because I was in the midst of finals, it was devastating. Uh, I was told um, the person wrote me and said, "Hey, guess what? I'm no longer at Sloan. Ke I'm no longer at Spofford Center. I'm now at Sloan Kettering, which is a major cancer hospital. Mm -hmm. And you can come with me there, or be released from your obligation." Well, obviously, mm -hmm. I wasn't going to find a new internship in, in a week. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought I'm stuck. And I thought that, you know, the good thing is I did a lot of work with children and adolescents. I'll get a chance to work with adults. Of course, when he looked at my prior experience, he assigned me the pediatric uh, and adolescent wards at Sloan Kettering, which is a major cancer hospital in New York. Mm -hmm. So I began to work with dying children and dying adolescents and ended up, I had to do a, 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 a thesis. I'm, I'm a Lutheran minister, so I was simultaneously going to the seminary and, and also going to St. Louis U for clinical sociology. So um, I did my two masters um, on the issues of, of, dying, uh, of dying children, um, pastoral care of the dying child and his family, um, and social organization of terminal care in two pediatric hospitals. 
and I ended up um, finding myself very much by accident when the articles got published um, in sort of the beginning of a movement I would call the second generation of people who were really studying death and dying. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it, one thing just led to another, and, and 50 years later, here I am. Voila, right? It's kind, of, it's kind of like the overnight success in the movie stars. You know, they've worked forever, yeah. and then one day everything comes together and it works very well. Well, in your book, um, When We Die, um, you start off the book um, with, I don't know if it's premonitions of death, but that's the first thing I wanted to cover. Um, so in when someone has premonitions about death, is it, their own personal premonition or is it something that maybe someone around them has dreamt or even thought up and they share with that person? Uh, and, and the answer is, is it could be both. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes the person has, has a premonition. One of the other chapters in the book is what we call nearing death awareness. Yeah, and, I'll go in there next. <laughs> so if you oh, want to yeah, combine okay. them two together, you can. <laughs> oh, okay. So, you know, so for instance, um, the premonition of death, I would define more as something that, um, that there's, no, there's no indication that somebody is going to die, and, and yet they get this premonition. Probably the most famous of, of these is, is the story of Lincoln, where mm-hmm. um, uh, Lincoln's bodyguard reg- uh, related that one day, uh, Lincoln had, he shared a dream that Lincoln had um, where Lincoln woke up uh, and in, in, in this dream, still dreaming, and he heard crying and he wandered down, um, you know, through the White House trying to find out who was crying. And he met a, a young soldier uh, guarding a room and he said, well, why is everyone crying? And the soldier said to him in this dream, are you the only person in Washington who doesn't realize the president's been shot? Wow. And uh, so that was probably one of the most famous premonitions of, of death. Um, nearing death awareness is a little bit different in that the person is actively dying um, and, and um, somehow communicates the fact that death is imminent um, by various means. It may be, um, it may be for example, um, saying uh, you find this person who's bedbound who says, oh, I, I, I have to catch a train tomorrow, and, you, and you're thinking this can't, person can't, can't get to the bathroom by himself. Or they talk about seeing deceased relatives. Oh, I just had a great conversation with Grandma. And you're mm-hmm. thinking, Grandma, five years ago, what's going on here? Um, and then the, uh, the third situation, which we experienced when my father died, is the person just has a sense of, 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 of dying. Um, so one day my father... Um, was ill. He uh, in July he took his children out to, to dinner and told them that they had just got bad news from the doctor that he had cancer that was now inoperable, um, and um, and you know and and had a few good months and then so starting in September began to decline uh, mm-hmm. slowly and got into hospice care, and um, and then one day he woke up and he said, "Am I dying?" And his, he wasn't saying, Am I, do I have a disease that's killing me? He, he well knew that, uh, but it seemed to be much more imminent. And my mother called me, and all the, his, you know, his three children came in, and we all sat around him, and we all talked with him. And, um, and that night he said, um, I feel better now. You should all go to your own rooms. And, um, and he died that night. And uh, mm-hmm. I always think that he needed us there 
but we couldn't be there at the moment he passed. You know, it's interesting that, you know, some societies and cultures believe that you need to be there surrounding the bed of the person who was crossed on, and then in many other instances, the person who is on their path of going to their next place, they don't want people watching the spectacle. They want to go kind of like in peace. Is there... Is it because of religion that we feel that we have to be around the person and comfort them? Or is it truly the person has truly detached from the earthly um, energy and is looking forward to going on to what's next for them? Okay. I'm, I'm going to answer that with probably all of the above. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, I, I, you know I, I don't think we know enough to answer that question. And I think in some cases, uh, people may want the, the comfort and support of others. Uh, mm-hmm. We are all very different. And, and I don't think those differences change when we're, when we're, when we're dying. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, we die as we lived. Mm, that's an interesting um, way to put it. We, we die as um, we lived. Now, when um, my mom was dying, she celebrated her 91st birthday. I think she wanted to live to be 100, but that wasn't in the cards for her. We had a 91st birthday party for her at the nursing home, and we invited all her friends in the nursing home, just about anybody, because everybody wanted food that was not from the nursing home. And <laughs> they were so happy. It's like, having, oh, say so good. Mm-hmm. having done a lot of work in nursing homes as a, as a gerontology professor, I can understand that. Yeah, so everybody came, you know, and they were having such a good time. And then all of a sudden, my mom just started bawling. And I'm like, you know, Mom, you're having a party. What's up with that? And um, she just wouldn't say anything, and she just kept shaking her head no. But I looked at her intuitively, and I'm like, oh, okay, she's nearing her time. But I didn't know when her time was, because when she turned 50 and I was much younger, I'm like, oh, she's dying tomorrow. And that never came, you know, to pass. So... She had her party, everybody laughed and everything. Um, that was like on a Sunday. On Tuesday, the nursing home called me. They said, look, you got to get up here. There's something different with your mom. She won't go to bed. And I'm like, well, okay. So I got up, you know, I don't know, 8, 9 o'clock at night, drove up there. And she's sitting in the middle of the floor with her um, pants legs rolled up, and she would never roll up her pants legs, showing her legs was a sin in her book. And she was very happy to see me. And I said, well, why won't you go to bed? She goes, oh, I, I was waiting for you. And I was like, okay, did they tell you I was coming? She said, no, but I knew you would be here. So I put her to bed. And I stayed with her for about an hour. Um, the next morning at 9 a.m., they called me and said she slipped into a coma, and she was in a coma until she passed. So would this be some of that near-death awareness that you're talking about, that maybe she knew she was going to? Yeah, yeah. usually when we use the term, we, we use it to express the fact that somebody in, in some oblique way may not even really consciously be aware of it, but they communicate the nearness of dying. So mm-hmm. it sort of sounds like it, but um, it, it also doesn't quite fit it. But, you know, again, uh, you know, we, we create sort of prototypes um, that don't always neatly fit into every situation. Okay. Well, give us a really clear example of what um, a near-death um, awareness would be. So that Near-death awareness, yeah. yeah. It, would be, it would be like my father or it might be somebody who says, um, oh, let me give you an example. Um, uh, a number one of the one of one of the cases that we have is somebody who who um, told his his um, 
his son that he he had to get ready because he was going on a trip tomorrow and you know and at the end he actually wanted his now this is a guy who's bed bound who's in the final stages of of um i think it was some form of cancer and mm-hmm. he insisted that his son shave him and um and put out his clothes, and he was very particular about what clothes he put out. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm going on a trip, and everything has to be right. Everything has to be right. And then he died that night. Mm. Um, and ironically, uh, this, this was the kind of, uh, when they looked at, uh, this was a very meticulous man, you know, well-planned, um, kind of well-planned everything. And uh, when they looked at his instructions, he had an envelope in case of my death, where he talked about, you know, where he wanted to be buried, and, which was obviously next to his wife, and, and what funeral home he wanted to, to be waked at. Um, and he also listed the clothes he wanted to wear. And it was all the clothes he wore. He, he had the son pick out. Mm-hmm. The suit, wow. the shirt, you know, the tie, mm-hmm. uh, the shoes. Uh, so, you know, uh, now, again, the question is whether he really knew he was going to die or not. But, you know, but the thing about nearing death awareness, and Callanan and Kelly wrote about this, and, and they titled their book Final Gifts, because it often gives a great opportunity for, for families if they recognize, or if, if you helping them recognize that this may be going on, to be able to say to them, if you're a hospice nurse or something, you know, when patients do this, um, it often is an indication that death is imminent. And if there's something mm-hmm. you want to say, um, this might be a good time to say it. Um, you know, one of the things that I did, you know, I, I kind of thought, you know, I wonder if this is what's going on with my dad. Uh, and so as we sat around, we reminisced and, um, and you know, and, and I started talking about the things that I really appreciated uh, about him. And, you know, I told him that when I was, you know, that I never appreciated this till I was an adult with my own child, mm-hmm. but that when he when he was, um, you know, he'd be coming home from work and maybe supper was going to be a little delayed and I was maybe five or six years old and I ran out to the car as he was pulling up and I'd run out to the car as he was pulling up and um, and what I would end up doing... It's okay. Just, just let it go. It's okay. Yeah. And what I would end up doing is, um, is um, you know, uh, is asking him to... Uh, to take me to the river because I used to love to go to the East River and watch the boats. Uh-huh. He'd say, "Okay, get in the car," you know. And then when my son was was uh, was younger and I was coming home from work, and and he would eventually do the the same sort of thing. And I, you know, in those days, I realized, oh, I just want to go home. I want to take off my shoes. I want to relax. And you know, but I do it because it was kind of a legacy to my dad in some ways. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, it was, or at least it, it modeled my dad. Uh, and so I told him that, and he appreciated it. And he said, but I, I always felt bad I never took you to a ball game. And I said, Dad, I hated to go to ball games. That's <laughs> one of the things that they positively in the eulogy. He uh-huh. never made me, he got a big kick out of that. And it was, it was nice. It was very reconciling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing how, you know, just that communication can clear the energy and allow one to be in a state of calm. Now, in your book, you tell the story about a woman named Keisha, and um she was away at school. Her grandmother, which she loved dearly, was getting ready to make her transition. Could you share that with the audience? You put um, it under the death, um, deathbed coincidences. Like Keisha wanted to come. She went to school, told grandma to hang on, hang on till I come back. But 
grandma couldn't just hang on. She left. His grandma couldn't hang on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, give me a little That's more on that case. Uh, you know, because um, I wrote some of them well, here. That one, and um, actually on page um, 76, you talk about Lincoln and, um, and Robert Todd. Robert Todd Lincoln and yes. his uh, death um, coincidence. Well, he was good. Robert Todd Lincoln had some really I- intriguing experiences. Uh, Mm-hmm. as we emphasize in, in the book. Uh, here was a guy who was uh, present at the assassinations of, of all three presidents who died in the 19th century or in early 20th century. Um, you know, he's, he was present. Uh, he went to his father when his father was still alive. He was there when Garfield got shot and McKinley was shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he turned down an invitation by Roosevelt saying, bad things happen when I go to see presidents. <laughs> I wouldn't let him in my meeting, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The interesting story about Robert Todd Lincoln in terms of coincidences was that when he was a young college student, um, you know, waiting for a train and and the crowd was was pushing behind him, and he got pushed into, toward the end of the, he got pushed into a potentially fatal situation where he could have gotten hit by the train. And all of a sudden, a hand pulled him back. And and the hand that pulled him back was that of John Wilkes Booth, not John Wilkes Booth, um, Edwin Booth, uh-huh. John Wilkes Booth's brother. So uh, so here, you know, uh, he's saved by the man who eventually by the brother of the man who eventually will kill his father. Wow. Uh, and Edwin, who was the unionist, who didn't agree with his brother's politics, um, uh, was a famous actor and. Uh, and so, you know, uh, he recognized, uh, you know, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln recognized him and later wrote to him. Um, and he took some comfort, he said, from the fact that he had saved Lincoln's son despite the, the shame his, his brother had brought to the family. Mm-hmm. It's like a healing in a weird way. You know? Yeah, yeah, strange sort of way. Yeah, everything goes full circle. Folks, we're speaking with Dr. Kenneth J. Doka. The book is When We Die extraordinary experiences at life ends if you want to see a little bit more about him what he does you can go to his website and that's drkendoka.com all one word d-r-k-e-n-d-o-k-a.com um dr ken you taught you mentioned earlier about a bond with your dad and you know the baseball story and all is it possible for a bond with the, the deceased to eventually become a chain Oh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that, you know, one of the really new understandings of death and dying is that we call, is is one we call continuing bonds. And what that really means is that, you know, we used to say you got to bring closure, you got to detach, you know, you got to move on. And we know that doesn't happen. We know that people retain relationships with the people who died. They're, they're part of our memory. You know, we we carry their legacies and sometimes their liabilities. we have spiritual connections to them. They're, they're still part of our lives. But sometimes it can become a chain. Um, sometimes um, what happens is that um, we, you know, what I call the deathbed promise. We make a deathbed mm. promise, which seemed good at the time, but, um, but now maybe not so. You know, uh, I've dealt a lot in counseling with women who had promised their husbands they'd never marry again. And, you know, and, and years go on and they're, they're lonely and they, you know, and, and they, they feel torn because they met somebody they would really like to have a relationship with, um, but they've made this promise uh, and, and those can be devastating. I had a young man 
who promised his father he was uh, he was from a line of Lutheran clergy that literally went back to the Reformation. Uh-huh. Uh, you know that far back, and wow. uh, he had two other brothers, and um, one brother had learning disabilities, and the other brother was highly introverted. So the father, as he was dying, kept pushing him. He was uh, dying prematurely of cancer, or I guess every death is premature, but mm-hmm. he was dying of cancer, and he kept pressing the boy, you know, to that he would become a minister and, and follow the family tradition. Um, and I think the kid honestly felt that that's what he wanted to do when uh, at, the, at the time he made that promise. But later on, um, that was not where he wanted to be. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was not what he wanted to do. And so he really kind of struggled with, well, you know, what does that mean and, 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 and the like. So, um, you know, I did some counseling with him and we talked about how ministry could be defined in different ways. But that was a chain. Uh, I'll tell you a little cute story about that. Years later, I met his mother uh, when I spoke at a retirement community, and she went up and introduced herself to me, and you know, and, and said, "I'm Jimmy's mother," and uh, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I remember Jimmy, and she said, um, she said, "I really want to thank you," and you know, and I told Jimmy I was going to see you today, and he wanted to thank you. He's very happy. He's involved in his congregation. He's doing what he wanted to do, which was to be a radio DJ. Um, mm-hmm. He said, "So you know, he really wanted me to thank you," and then she smiled at me and said. But grandma, meaning his paternal grandmother, was not pleased with you. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> she was the one who was, was, who was sort of tightening the chain. You promised uh-huh. your dad. You, know, you promised your dad. Mm-hmm. You know, how can we break those promises without feeling guilty? Because some of them just don't make sense. I promised my dad that I'd take care of my mom and my sister. And I did that for, I don't know, maybe 30 years. And then I got tired because they were growing on their own. So I cut that cord. So so am I going to die and go to hell now? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, don't um, uh, I don't think so at all. I, I think, you know, you you have to confront the guilt that you may feel, but you also have to realize, you have to ask the question, was this a promise? Um, what, I mean, a couple of questions you might say. You might say, well, what really did the promise mean? And, you know, in my way, if you were my client, I would probably talk with you about how for so many years you kept the promise. And then mm-hmm. another way would maybe to be reframing that promise. Taking care of them may mean that you have to push them to independence. Exactly. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like the... You know, the bird, you know, ultimately the birds have to be pushed out of the nest to fly, and, and that may have been your way of taking care of them. And me. <laughs> you know, you got to take care of yourself first, because um, if you don't, yeah, uh, yeah. not wonderful things will happen. Okay, so in your book you talk about grief being a journey. Talk to us about that, because, you know, my dad died, um, God, 50 years ago. I mean, 50, yeah, maybe 50, 52 years ago. Um, And um, there's still a grieving process kind of going on, not as intense as it was in the beginning. And I have to, you know, context, my dad never best buds and did everything together. But talk to us about grief being a journey and then coming to some level of acceptance. Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't know. That we uh, acceptance is a strange word for me. Um, okay. I, I I think what we you know what we might what of course we have to do is acknowledge that the person has died and they're no longer a physical presence in our life, but they still may be in in very strong ways a spiritual and emotional presence in our life and mm-hmm. and we can 
we can take comfort in that, that, you know, we, we never lose the connections. We never lose the bonds. Um, when, when people come into me for counseling, one of the first, you know, things I ask them is I always ask them the question, what do you hope to, uh, to happen out of this? And they'll often say something like that. Well, I guess I want to move on. I, I guess I want to, you know, uh, you know, forget the person or move on or bring closure, whatever phrase they use. And I'll, I'll turn to them and I'll say, do you really want to? And then they'll, they'll say, no, I, I never want to lose the connection. And then you'll say, oh, and I'll talk to them about what we can do in grief therapy. And I'll say, what we can do, I said, the first, and I'll just say this, I said, the first sign that you're recovering, first sign that you're doing better, is when, you, um, when you're able to laugh at a story about the person that's too painful to recount now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you're able to, to reach back and enjoy uh, the relationship. But you're always going to have surges of grief. Um, when my dad died, it was uh, 10 years later when my, my grandson was born, and I, I picked up the phone and, try, and actually started dialing my dad. Hmm. And then I realized, wait a minute, he's not here anymore. But, you know, that was a moment I, I so wanted to share with him. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, you know, so... Um, so, you know, so it's okay to have those connections. I, I, I may have lost the train of your original question. Um, no, I think you answered it quite well, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we can go on to the next. Now, there's um, this one subject in, um, in the black culture. It's about, oh, they got well to die. That's what it's called. In your book, you called it terminal lucidity. Why is it that sometimes people get or appear to be doing much, much better than they were, even say the day before, and then die shortly thereafter. Yeah, and, and again, there are, you know, there are all kinds of explanations for that, none of which is fully satisfactory, but it, it is a kind of well-known uh, situation. It's been documented for uh, uh, first paper on it came out in like uh, the 18, late 1880s. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, and, and what it is is that patients, uh, persons who are dying or sometimes dying, uh, sometimes comatose or, um, or sometimes even um, severely uh, mentally disabled uh, by dementia or um, by, um, you know, developmental disabilities will all of a sudden have these lucid moments right before they're, they're, they're dying, um, the most famous of which was... Um, was was a case of this woman in Germany, first recorded case of it, where this woman had severe intellectual disabilities, what we would call, you know, years ago, very uh, severely retarded. We don't, you know, happily mm-hmm. we don't use that language anymore, but mm-hmm. just to convey it if, if we're not familiar with the current vocabulary, but she had severe intellectual disabilities and, and, and never even spoke. And the day before she died, um, she woke from her bed. She had been comatose. She had these disabilities, and she sung a coherent hymn of her own dying. Wow. And what was fascinating about that case is it, it really impacted the people. Uh, she was in Germany, and the physician and the clergyman who saw her were, were both young and knew at their job. And years later, um, they actually, that incident gave them courage um, to fight Hitler's notion to euthanize the severely disabled. Because they said, we, we are clear from this case that there is no life that is not worth living. You know, remember, that was one of Hitler's phrases. Yeah, yeah. 
And so, you know, so so it, it does happen, and it's remarkable. And again, um, sometimes the, the danger of it is that people think, oh, this person's going to get better now, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. We're really, again, much like what we talked about nearing death awareness, it's a final um, it's a final gift. It's a gift to, to take those moments, to say what you need to say, to hug, to kiss, um, to really say to that person, you know, we loved you. Okay. Now, I want to switch gears. What about ghosts? You tell a fascinating story in your book about um, ghosts in your own family home. But are ghosts real or is it just our imagination bringing uh, these folks to some type of life? Well, you know, uh you got me on that one. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and one of the things I try to do in the book, which I think you alluded to in the beginning, is, is not do a lot of judging. Right. And when, what I try to do in this book is to say, look, it, these are some experiences that are well recorded. They're found across cultures. They're found across history. There are all kinds of different explanations for it. But, um, but you make sense of it, you know, and... Um, and if there was an instrument to detect ghosts, um, as a family, we'd probably chip in and, and see if it worked and, uh, and see if we found her. Um, but, but, you know, but, you know, as I said, we've had strange experiences in the basement, all very benign, all very positive. Um, and, you know, um, one time when my niece was down there, it's a family home, and, you know, five generations of the family have lived in that house. Uh, I don't live in it anymore, but my, you know, um, but it's a two-family house, and it's always been occupied by family. And um, and and when my niece was little, uh, my sister—that's where we had the laundry room. My sister was had brought her downstairs as she was stacking laundry, and you know, she was sitting in her in a in a small playpen down there, and it looked like she was conversing with somebody, <laughs> mm. you know, happily chatting away. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, and and we've all had experiences like that. Um, and even my daughter-in-law, um, we, we never told her the story because she can be superstitious at times. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, when we, uh, when when Mike, my son, was living in the house, uh, she said, you know, I always get this weird feeling when I'm in your basement, um, you know, that somebody's watching me. And so we still laughed and told her the story. Mm-hmm. We call the ghost in the basement, you know. And and I wonder. Um, she, you know, she she uh, died by suicide. My grandmother, uh, my maternal, my paternal grandfather died by mm-hmm. suicide in the basement, and um, and and without, evidently she was a very unhappy woman, and and kind of as a way also to kind of reintegrate her into our life because we know very little about her. Uh, so it's 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 a kind of a way that um, we redefine her. Mm-hmm. So is she there or not? I don't know, but. Um, I'd like to think she is, and uh, I like to think she's a lot happier than she was in life. Yeah, well, my intuitive hit is that she's still there, but I feel um, I have pity on if should the family sell the home and someone else moves in because the energy is not going anyplace. They're home, and it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, we, we, you know, it's funny you say that because we often joke about that. Mm-hmm. You know, happily, my, my niece now owns the house. My niece and goddaughter now owns the house. But we always say, you know, sell it to a family member. We can't take the responsibility. <laughs> well, or and, that, yeah. or the new people move in. They just have to get used to a live-in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but who knows how friendly she'll be then. 
that's true because they do tend to be territorial, especially based on um, the calls that I get from folks. Um, you have um, a chapter, I think it's the last or the next to the last in your book, and you call it, We All Live at the Edge of Forever When We Die. What do you mean by that? Well, this is what I, I mean about, you know, continuing bonds, that, um, you know, so many times I've had people say, as, you know, as I've talked about these kinds of experiences, you know, some people will often share them and say, oh, you know, that makes sense. I had this and, you know, and, and, and this happened to me. But there are others who will say, um, I, I wish I had that. I, I wish I had such an experience as, as that. Um, you know, uh, uh, one of the experiences I talk about, for instance, are the, are the extraordinary experiences that people have when somebody dies, where they smell them or they see them or they dream of them. And so many times people will, will say to me, I wish I had that kind of contact. I wish I had some reassurance. And so in the last chapter, I try to bring it home by saying, you know, well, these, these experiences are shared by many. And in terms of these extraordinary experiences of bereavement, uh, studies have shown about 60% of people will have one or more of these kinds of, uh, of instances. But remember, you know, the people you love are accessible to you. Um, uh, they're accessible sometimes in dreams. They're accessible sometimes in the legacy, always in the legacies and liabilities you've given them, in the memories, in in the biography. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm sure. I don't know you, but I'm sure if I did and I knew your your parents, I'd see parts of them in you. Oh, yeah. uh, if you knew me, you'd see parts of my mom and my father in me. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and we all. And, and so, what it's trying to say is, is you know. Uh, is whatever you may think about all the stuff you read in this book, remember that the people we love live on in us. Yeah, the love lives on too. You know, I yeah. so many people yeah. think that when the physical body stops functioning that, you know, the soul or essence, whatever you want to refer to it, um, goes away too. But it can stay around. And yeah. uh, Go ahead. No, that's all. Okay. Um, There was one other thing I wanted to cover. Um, The beautiful book, When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life End. You've been doing this work for a long time. Why this book? Why this book now? Okay. Um, It was interesting because, you know, I I mean, ever since my first experience in Sloan Kettering, uh, I've... um, you know, I, I've encountered these kinds of things. Uh, I remember being with a, 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 you know, with a dying child in Sloan Kettering who all of a sudden uh, came out of a coma and said, why are all these, 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 these bright people in the room? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, and the, and the only people in there was the nurse and the parents. And, mm-hmm. But she was obviously excited by seeing these figures that she seemed to see that were sort of figures of light as best as we could have, have her describe her in, in the short time. And then she reached out her hand and, and, and then died. Um, you know, it was a, a remarkable experience to hear of. And, you know, and, and, um, and quite frankly, it didn't fit in well, you know, with, um, with my scientific orientation or, and some of the experiences that we've shared didn't, don't, doesn't necessarily fit in well, like the ghost in the basement with mm-hmm. my theology. Um, but, um, but I, you know, I began to collect these stories. I began to hear these stories and I began to say, well, something's going on here. And a number of years ago, um, 
a woman by the name of Terry Daniels, who has an afterlife conference, uh, asked me to speak. And, you know, and I tried to discourage her. You know, I said, I'm not sure that I'm your person, Terry. Um, I'm not sure that I'm the one you want. You know, uh, you know, I told her all my reservations and she was pretty insistent. And when Terry wants something I've learned over the years, she gets it. Terry gets it. <laughs> So I, I, you know, I, I, I came out and, and I spoke and, and I did in my mind what I thought was a, a very fair presentation, you know, basically mm-hmm. what I did in the book. I said, you know, these are experiences that have been researched. They have been, you know, uh, take them as you will. We can disagree. We cannot disagree that these experiences happen to people. There's, there's no disagreement there, I don't think. There really can't be. They're so mm-hmm. widely shared. They're so widely shared across cultures, across history. Certainly we can argue about um, what they mean or why they happen. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but you can't disagree that these happen. And I thought, and so I, I gave what I thought was a very fair speech. That was basically the thesis of it. And I described these various experiences. And what I was surprised by, because this is really an audience of believers, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, true believers, is that people came up to me and really said, we really appreciated your, your take on this. And, um, and that's when I decided this is probably worth a book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't talk about it a lot. You know, I, I remember... Um, the first time I ever experienced one of these things in counseling was I was counseling a woman who's, uh, and I recount this story in the book, whose young daughter had died between three and four of um, sudden infant death syndrome, which is late for that to happen, but still in range. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the things that the mother did was when they were going out or something special was happening and she put on her her perfume uh the daughter would ask to you know to for mother to for her mother to put a dab on on, you know by her ears and Uh she'd go out and make everyone smell her and how nice she smelled just like mommy Uh um when the girl died when the girl died the last thing the mother did was um she anointed her with that perfume and put the bottle in the casket uh, and switched to another brand because that brand was so associated with her daughter. Mm-hmm. At the time, that was her first and only child. And she was coming to me about a year later for counseling. And, and the question, the ba- basic question was, I can't go through this again. Nobody can guarantee that it can't happen again. But I don't also envision my life as not having children. You know, so mm-hmm. struck this, this corundum uh, and this, this dilemma. And so, as, as we, so one day she came into my office. And she was glowing, and she said, I had the most incredible experience. She said, I went into my daughter's room before I went to see you today, and I smelled the smell of the perfume all over the room. And she said, I I, I was so shaken by that, shaken by that, I actually asked my husband to come in, and without saying it, he said, I I thought you switched perfumes. I didn't think you used that anymore. And she told him she hadn't had it since her daughter's death, but he smelled the same perfume. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so she's coming into me. I'm a 27-year-old counselor at the time. Um, I don't know what to make of this. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. hallucinations, you know, uh, but it didn't seem to be. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of asked her. Uh, I probably asked the right question, but, you know, not by skill, just by luck. Mm-hmm. I said, what did this experience mean to you? And she said it was my daughter telling me she was okay. And um, And soon after... She had um, three other children, and um, and every once in a while I would get a notice that one of them, you know, graduated from college or something like that. 
uh, she shoot, you know, shoot me a card or, you know, one of those graduation announcements. Mm-hmm. Um, it still brings tears to my eyes, that story. And, um, you know, so, so I kind of stored this, you know, and thought, well, this is weird, you know. And, um, and then I go to the associate, one of the conferences I go to regularly is the Association of Death Education and Counseling. And, uh, and one year, Bonnie Lindstrom, uh, a hospice uh, person who worked in hospice, did a wonderful paper on these kinds of experiences. Uh, and the first pr- presentation I ever seen on it, it was early, I think, in the 80s. And, um, and then a bunch of us retired to the bar um, after the conference, and, you know, we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, when we all started sharing these stories of what people had, you know, the, the things that we had experienced in counseling, very much in line with what, uh, what Bonnie had experienced, um, and um, or Bonnie had reported, and then we asked the question, you know, uh, none of us are shy about writing. Why didn't we write it? But we were all kind of um, almost like we didn't want to be the first person to stick our neck out. Mm, okay. You know, with the fear that, you know, Doki used to do some good writing, but see the crazy stuff he's into now? <laughs> you know, and... Um, and and so that kind of freed us up and um and, and really kind of um started my my started my interest in this uh although it took a long time for for me to you know continue it mm-hmm. well you know we start someplace and it might be you know a little bit later in life not everything comes from k through 12 right now in your book um you do talk about mediums what is your your baseline thoughts on mediums. I even being a psychic, I had my doubts. Um, and you know, there's certain people I truly believe can tap into the energy. Some a lot of people um, cannot, but will tell you that they can and take people's money, and that really bothers me. And it wasn't until I was actually working a psychic fair and I was setting up my booth in a medium that you know works the psychic circuit. She just came by in passing, and she goes, "Did you know your mother was murdered?" I'm like, "What?" And she goes, your mother was murdered. Now, the mom that I say that died at 91 was my stepmother. My biological uh, mother died when I was five. And it came out after research that, yes, she was murdered. So what is your take on mediums? Well, I, I think very similar to yours. You know, um, I, have found, I have sometimes found what I consider to be, you know, um, what I would, would call a therapeutic alliance, you know, where you're both, you know, you're both working with a bereaved parent, for example. Um, and, you know, and what, what I would always do is, um, is if somebody came to me, a client same to, came to me and said, well, I, I'd like to go to a medium or I'm thinking about going to a medium. I would say, well, uh, what do you hope to gain from that? And, and you know, and, and then I, I think I would also try, um, you know, to say, you know, be careful, you know, um, and, and I agree with you. I think some people have um, a, a kind of um, shocking ability to to say the kinds of things that that woman said to you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that do seem to have some sort of connection or some kind of insight, however you want to define it. And there's other people who may think they do but really don't, and other people who are certainly probably um, using it as an opportunity to con. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think one has to be careful, but I, I've had experiences. I had an experience I think I recount in the book where, um, you know, similar to yours, where mediums have told me things that they couldn't have possibly have known. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so uh, I'm respectful, but cautious. Yeah, that's that's the way to uh, call it, respectful but cautious. Um, Dr. Ken, I really enjoyed our time together today. Uh, why don't you share with us a pearl of wisdom that you would like to leave with our audience? Oh, that's tough. Um, gee, okay. Um, well, I think if I had one pearl to say is um, is um, keep an open mind. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Always remember you have a connection with the people you loved who have died, and, um, and sometimes that connection may, um, may find light in some very strange and unusual experiences, and when they happen, accept them as a blessing. There you go. Perfect. Well, Dr. Ken, thanks so much for being with us today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed being with you, Monique. Oh, thank you, and you're welcome. And to the audience, thank you for joining us today as we uh, collectively get over it and think about what happens when we die. And I want you to all remember that the most important choice that you can make is what you choose to make important. And consider making the masterful choice of love. Abundant blessings, light, and love to all. Agape.